turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. The letter to the Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be looking at verse 5 and considering scripture mining, but for the sake of context, I'm going to begin in verse 1. So we'll be reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, but only paying attention to verse 5 for the sermon. Give attention now to God's holy word, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world's who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come now into your presence, O Lord, desiring to meet with you and to commune with you in the gifts and graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come, O Lord, in obedience to your command and in the hope of your promise that preaching is that great means of grace. And so we come, even as servants look to their masters and as maidservants look to their mistresses, we come looking for you and waiting upon you. We ask, O Lord, that you would satisfy our desire by pouring out your Spirit from heaven. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. So I want to ask you a question, and that question is, If there were a king in our midst, how would you know that he is a king? If you were to go to Buckingham Palace and see the royal family, how would you know which one was Queen Elizabeth? Now, you probably know what Queen Elizabeth looks like, so you could tell. But imagine you went to a kingdom in a faraway land, and you did not know the members of the royal family, and as you entered the throne room, how would you identify which one was the king? Well, one of the easiest ways to tell who the king is is to find out which one is wearing the crown. The crown is a symbol of kingship. The crown is something that we put on the heads of kings to mark them out as the one who not only is in charge, but as the one to whom we owe all respect, reverence, and honor. The crown is what marks out the king. Now, if you know anything about crowns, crowns don't grow on trees, as they say. Crowns are often made of precious metals. Crowns can be made of anything from uh, iron and silver or gold and precious gems. And so to, to get a crown, you have to have two things. You have to go find the material And then once you have the material for the crown, you have to fashion it into a crown. It has to be made into the crown 
that's going to be placed on the king's head. But there's one more important thing. And this is an aspect of kingship that we have forgotten because we don't live in the age of kings anymore. We don't live in the age of royal men who are in charge of a kingdom and we don't recognize that the men who are in charge have been placed there by God. We don't live in that age anymore. We live in the age of the people. We live in the age of by the people and for the people and from the people. Back in an age when they did recognize the dignity of kings, in fact, one of the greatest kings of the medieval period was Charlemagne. Charlemagne was king of the Franks, and after he uh, achieved a great victory for the Pope in Rome, he was crowned as the first Holy Roman Emperor. He was crowned on Christmas Day in A.D. 800, and when he was crowned, the Pope took the crown and placed it on Charlemagne's head. Now, I don't want to get into the discussion of whether or not Catholics are true Christians. That's not the point. The point of that ceremony was with the Pope putting the crown on Charlemagne's head, it was symbolic that God had crowned this man. God was the one who had anointed him the king. God was the one who put him where he is. Now, that all changed when we get to Napoleon. Napoleon was a French dictator. He was the strong man who came up in France after the French Revolution. And when Napoleon ascended the throne and when he was crowned emperor of France... The, the, the bishop was bringing the crown to him, and do you know what Na, uh, Napoleon did? As the bishop was bringing the crown to him, Napoleon took the crown and put it on his own head. That was a highly symbolic act, and that was overturning centuries of tradition. God is the one who appoints men to office. But Napoleon, by taking the crown and placing it on his own head, was saying, I have put myself in this office. That's the age that we live in. That's the age that we occupy. From the days of Napoleon, we live in a world that does not recognize God's sovereignty. That does not recognize that it is God himself who places kings and princes and brings them down again. And so if you're going to tell who the king is... You have to have precious material. You have to have a crown that has been formed from that precious material. But also, that king has to be crowned by God himself. Kings do not crown themselves. God crowns kings. Well, what we're going to see in this passage is that all of those features are exactly true of the Lord Jesus Christ we're going to see that the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes and finds the precious material in the Word of God. And he forms that material into the crown, and then that crown is placed on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, we're going to see specifically that the author of Hebrews uses 
the Holy Spirit's method to find the Holy Spirit's material to crown the Lord Jesus. The author of Hebrews uses the Holy Spirit's method to find the Holy Spirit's material to crown the Lord Jesus. Now, we're only looking at one verse, because as you're going to learn in this book of Hebrews, these verses are very dense, and so we need to unpack things out of verse 5. The very first statement in verse 5, scholars will call this 5a, which is the first full sentence, for to which of the angels did he ever say, that's the Holy Spirit's method. 5a is the Holy Spirit's method. And then 5b and 5c, the two quotations from the Old Testament, are the Holy Spirit's material. 5a is the Holy Spirit's method. 5b and c are the Holy Spirit's material. And so as we begin, we begin with the Holy Spirit's method. But we do have to have a little bit of context before we approach this passage. And the context is simply this. When you think about the Lord Jesus Christ and how it is that the Lord Jesus Christ presents himself to you, in what way does the Lord Jesus Christ come to men today? Does the Lord Jesus Christ, when the gospel is preached by his ministers, come to people as a sympathetic high priest? Is that how he presents himself at the first? Or does the Lord Jesus Christ present himself to people as the inspired prophet, as the one who comes with wisdom from heaven? Or does the Lord Jesus Christ present himself to people as the victorious and enthroned king? Think about the history of the New Testament. Think about the very first sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This is highly important for us to understand the work of the Lord Jesus today. And this sets the context for what the author of Hebrews is doing. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching the first sermon of the Christian era. And the conclusion of his sermon is found in verse 36. I'm sorry, verse 34. Verse 34, Peter has been going through the Old Testament, preaching to the people. And then he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter draws this conclusion. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What Peter is telling the people when he presents the gospel to them is that Jesus, whom you crucified, is now the King He now reigns with authority. He is the sovereign. God has placed the crown on his head. You need to know this. And this is how Christ presents himself to us every day of our lives. When preaching comes to you, 
When the Word of God comes to you and Christ, by the power of His Spirit, impresses His Word upon you, He is presenting Himself to you as a King. The Sovereign One whom God has crowned. You know, in the New Testament, the act of preaching is keruso. The Greek word is keruso. Preachers are called keruks. That word group in Greek refers to a herald. And a herald is somebody who comes on behalf of the king, making the world aware that the king reigns. The king is enthroned. As you see in the old movies where the guy comes out and says, Hear ye, hear ye. The king is present. The king is coming. The king reigns. That's how Christ presents himself to us every day of our lives. That's what the author of Hebrews is proving in chapter 1, verse 5. Remember the generic context of the book of Hebrews so far. The author of Hebrews has asserted that this uh, son by whom the father has spoken to us After he had purged our sins, verse 3, he is now seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. He has obtained a better name than the angels because by inheritance he has received a better name. In other words, the author of Hebrews is arguing this very simple but critical point. You need to listen to Christ. Because Christ is king over the angels. You need to listen to Christ and follow his religion. Because Christ is the supreme revealer of God's will, having been enthroned as king. That's what the author of Hebrews has asserted. Now, in verse 5, he goes to prove it. He goes to make good his assertion. Notice in verse 5, it begins with the word, In the New Testament and the Old Testament in certain places, when this word comes up, a verse is introduced by the word for, the author is assigning a reason for what he has just said. He's giving you the the argument, as it were. He's proving his point. So in verse 4, he says he has a more excellent name than the angels. Verse 5, because or for... To which of the angels did he ever say? Now, the author of Hebrews at this point introduces to us the Holy Spirit's method. How does the Holy Spirit read Scripture? Now, we need to make a couple comments here about the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews. One of the things that you're going to find in the book of Hebrews is that there's nothing new in the book of Hebrews. There's no new revelation in this book. All you're going to find is the author of Hebrews goes back to the Old Testament. He digs up the material of the Old Testament. And then he interprets it and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no new revelation in this book. It's all interpretation and exegesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now there's an important lesson for us when we talk about inspired Scripture. Sometimes when we say that the Bible is inspired, we mean 
It contains things man did not come up with on his own. When we say that the Bible is inspired, we sometimes mean it contains new information. That's one aspect of what inspiration means. However, especially for the book of Hebrews, the other thing that inspiration means is that it is free from error. It is free from mistakes. You see, inspiration doesn't just mean the author received direct new special revelation. It also means that the author, as a man with a mind and a will and affections, is reading and interpreting the Old Testament and the inspiration of the Spirit is guarding him from making any mistakes. You see, the author of Hebrews is using his own reason. He's using his own mind to draw out certain conclusions. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit is guarding and protecting him from making any mistakes as he goes through his exegesis. So when we say that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we mean that it is free from error in all of the statements that it makes because the author was guided by the Holy Spirit in all of his steps of reasoning. Now, why is this important here? Well, because what the author is doing is using something that we call good and necessary consequence. Good and necessary consequence. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 speaks about good and necessary consequence, and it says that everything which man needs for salvation, everything that you need to know for salvation is either expressly stated in the Holy Scriptures or by good and necessary consequence may be derived from the Scriptures. Well, what is good and necessary consequence? Good and necessary consequence is simply the way in which your mind functions. Good and necessary consequence is simply the way in which your mind operates. Think about if you're going to go and mine gold. If you want to make a crown and give it to a king. Well, when you go to the place of the mine, you have to have the right tools, don't you? You could go with a pocket knife, and you'll probably be there for the rest of your life trying to find gold. But if you go with the pickaxe, and you go with the proper type of lamp, and you go with the proper type of uh, ventilation for the mine, if you have all the right tools, then you can go into the mine and extract the gold in the most efficient way. Likewise, with the Holy Scriptures, they are, as it were, like a vast mine that has been set up by God, and then he commands us, go into the mine. Go and dig out gold for your souls. And the way that you do it is by good and necessary consequence. Let me give you an illustration of good and necessary consequence. Many of you have probably heard this illustration before, but it's very helpful for us. All men are mortal. Pastor Castle is a man. Therefore, 
Pastor Castle is mortal. This is an illustration of logic. All men are mortal. Pastor Castle is a man. Therefore, Pastor Castle is mortal. This is how good and necessary consequence works. We are to go to the Scriptures and reason with the Scriptures. We are to go and find the raw material of the Scriptures, and in bringing that raw material together, we draw conclusions from it. Now, we're going to look at how the author of Hebrews does this in particular, but I want to just point out a couple of things because we often labor under a misconception when it comes to reading the Scriptures. And the misconception that we labor with, the mistake in our minds, is we expect the Bible to say everything we need it to say explicitly. We expect the Bible to give us chapter and verse for every question that we have. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible gives you sufficient revelation to know the essentials. And some of the particular questions we have today, we have to think it through. We have to reason through what the Scriptures teach us. One final illustration on this point. Because I know that in our day, sometimes this doctrine is highly questioned. This doctrine is looked at as highly suspicious because of the day in which we live. We live in the day of uh, battling perspectives. We live in a culture that says there is no absolute truth. That's just your interpretation. You ever heard that before? That's the suspicion of this doctrine that the author of Hebrews uses that we need to be reminded of. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that there was one God eternally existing in three persons, is a doctrine that comes from good and necessary consequence. Nowhere in the Bible will you find it stated, chapter and verse, there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, world without end, amen. You won't find those words put together in that order in the scriptures. But you will find that there is one God. And you will find that the Father is God. And you will find that the Son is God. And you'll also find that the Holy Spirit is God. And from that raw material, we deduce the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. So this is a part and parcel of our faith, the faith that you believe right now. By the way, if you don't believe in the Holy Trinity, you are not saved. If you deny the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, you are not a Christian, even though it's not stated explicitly. But it does come by good and necessary consequence. There's other doctrines we could highlight to illustrate this point, but I think it's sufficient for now. Notice what the author of Hebrews does. He says, at no point in the Scriptures has God ever said to the angels what he's about to say about the Son. Now, this comes from, as John Owen helpfully points out for us, the only way that this statement works is if we regard the Holy Scriptures as perfect and complete. The Scriptures being perfect and complete, we have a full and sufficient revelation of God in the Holy Scriptures. From that standpoint now, the author can say in all of Holy Scripture, God has never said what he's about to say to the Son. 
At no point does God ever say to the angels, you are my son and this day I have begotten you. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now there's a couple things that arise from this. First, scripture is complete. The revelation of God is sufficient for your faith in life. You don't need anything outside of the Bible to be a godly Christian. You don't need psychology. You don't need history. You don't need philosophy. You don't need uh, culture. You don't even need theology from the theologians. All you need are the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. This revelation is sufficient for what it's intended to do. And what it is intended to do is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as the author now goes to do. So he uses the method of the Holy Spirit and then he goes and finds the material of the Holy Spirit. He quotes two passages from the Old Testament, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2 as we look at the passage that this author is mining from. Psalm chapter 2, he quotes in particular verse 7. Now I want to move through this whole passage to give us some of the context. Here's something to keep in mind. When a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage, He's not doing typically what we do, where we take a phrase or a sentence out of a verse, and we only want to focus on that one verse. You've probably heard the the funny illustration where the man was uh, uh, asking, what is God's will for his life? And the pastor told him, well, you need to go to the Bible. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to go to the Bible. He opens it at random. says, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Puts his finger down. Judas hanged himself. And then he's like, okay, that can't be right. He does it again, opens the Bible. He puts his finger down again. It's where Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. You see, sometimes we quote the Bible that way. We take a sentence out of context, and it's like, well, uh, this doesn't seem to fit. The author of Hebrews has the whole context of Psalm 2 in mind. And Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. Look at what the author is saying. Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Brothers and sisters, what encouragement there is for us today in this psalm. If there's any verse in the whole Bible that describes the age in which we live, It's these three verses that we just read. Why do the nations rage? Why do presidents and judges and NGOs and international organizations plot and scheme together to overthrow the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice the language that uh, David perhaps uses here. Against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed. In Greek, this is the word Christ saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Brothers and sisters, you need to know the schemes of wicked men in high places 
are not primarily schemes against you and your civil liberties. They are schemes against God Almighty and the Christ who rules over men and nations. And one of the ways he rules over men and nations is through the law of nature. Why is it that a Supreme Court nominee cannot identify what a woman is? She's throwing off the bonds of Jehovah and his Christ. She's trying to get out of the law and reign of the Lord Jesus. She doesn't want to submit to the reality that God has created. These are the days in which we live. But notice what the psalmist goes on to say. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He shall hold them in derision. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. This is a little bit off script, but I want to encourage you with something. You know, sometimes uh, life is hard. Sometimes things happen that are just completely out of your control, and they can really get you down. Now, sometimes my wife and I will say to each other when... Number three has messed his pants, and number two is fussy, and number uh, four is about to throw up, and dinner is burning on the stove. Sometimes you just have to laugh so you don't cry. Sometimes you just have to laugh at this is life. There's nothing we can do about it. We might as well enjoy it. But notice what the Lord does to these people in high places, these wicked fools the Lord laughs at them. Vladimir Putin, <laughs> that's cute. Joe Biden, nice try. European Union, not going to make it. Sometimes you just have to laugh lest you cry. I want to encourage you, find this kind of joy. Now, the joy of the Lord here is not arrogant pride. He's not laughing arrogantly. The Lord is not an arrogant and proud being. But he is sovereign, he is in control, and he is confident that his word will come to pass. This is why you can laugh. This is why you can have joy. Because God's word will not be defeated. He who sits in the heavens will accomplish all his holy pleasure. So maybe turn off the news. Maybe... Turn off the social media. Maybe just unplug, enjoy some of the good things of life, and laugh at those who would try to overthrow Christ. He then goes on, though, and gets more specific. Verse 5, He shall then speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king, notice the royal language, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. You see, what wicked men may attempt to do is all in vain because at the end of the day, Jehovah and his Christ reign. Jehovah and his Christ are sovereign. Jehovah and his Christ control all things. You know why people fall into despair? You know why suicide rates are through the roof right now? is because in the mindset of most people, the ultimate reality is chaos or random, uh, random organizations of impersonal forces. Or perhaps in their mind, the ultimate 
Uh, reality in their life is Joseph Biden or Vladimir Putin or uh, Vladimir Zelensky or, or some other uh, force is ultimately in control. And if that's the worldview that you have, if those men are ultimately in control, you have no hope. But what the psalmist is reminding us of here, that's not true. God's king is on his holy hill of Zion. Christ, the one who died for you, the one who prays for you, the one who, as we read in Psalm 63, will come from Edom with his robe dripping with the blood of his enemies. That Christ is in charge. That Christ is ruling and reigning. And now that Christ begins to speak. Look at what he says. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Notice a couple of things about verse 7. First off, who is speaking in verse 7? Pay careful attention. Who is speaking in verse 7? The one whom the Lord says is his son. Look at it. I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So who's speaking in verse 7? The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking in verse 7. Remember what the author of Hebrews said in verse 1. God has now spoken to us in his son. Notice further what verse 8 talks about. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Hebrews chapter 1 verse three, uh, 4, the author says that this Christ has obtained a better name by way of inheritance. He has inherited a better name. And notice that this name, this inheritance, is his sovereign rule over all things. Now, there's a debate about verse 7. What is being talked about here? Is this Christ being called the Son because he's the eternally begotten Son of the Father? It says, today I have begotten you. Would seem to imply Christ's eternal generation from the Father. Or is this talking about something that happened in the life of Christ by which he was declared to be the Son of God? I side with the latter interpretation for two reasons. One, notice in verse 7 it says today. So there's a specific moment in time that the author, uh, that the Lord is speaking about. Today, at this moment, I have begotten you. You are my son. I think also in Acts chapter 13, turn with me, Acts chapter 13, this verse and the other places where this verse is quoted is connected with the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Uh, starting in verse 32. This is Paul preaching. Verse 32, he's, he's speaking to the Jews and he says, And we declare to you glad tidings. We declare to you the gospel. We declare to you the good news, that promise which was made to the fathers. 
God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Notice how Paul quotes this verse from Psalm 2 and applies it to the resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the day in which God declared Jesus to be his son. He says this explicitly in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes in verse, oh, Romans 1 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, glad tidings of God, good news of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and, notice carefully, declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that in the first place, God the Father declared Christ to be his only begotten Son by means of the resurrection from the dead. Now, we need to be careful at this point. Christ did not become something he wasn't before. The resurrection of the dead did not make Christ the Son of God. Christ is always the Son of God. He was always the Son of God in all eternity. He remained the Son of God, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 1, upholding all things by the word of His power. He remained the Son of God during the incarnation. The resurrection was an open manifestation and declaration that He is indeed the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. John Owen, commenting on Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, says simply this, Christ is declared to be the Son of God because He is the Son of God. God's recognition of Him as His only begotten Son through the resurrection of the dead is because He indeed is the Son of God from all eternity. There's a very helpful insight here in how we think about naming things. Again, we live in a day where men are trying to overthrow the bounds of God's order. They're trying to throw off natural law. We live in a day where people who are men declare themselves to be women. We live in a day where women, they are women, declare themselves to be men. We even live in a day, you may not realize this, where people who are as white as the one standing in front of you declare themselves to be African-American. I'm not joking. We live in this kind of day where you can name yourself whatever you want to be. doesn't matter what you are in reality. You can declare yourself to be what you feel like being. But we see here, at the bottom of all reality, at the height of sovereignty, the ultimate reality is a declaration 
of the truth according to the truth. God the Father declares His Son to be His only begotten Son because He indeed is His only begotten Son. Do, pardon me, do not be afraid to speak the truth. Do not be afraid to declare things as they are. God the Father does so with His only begotten Son. Again, he, he moves on then and quotes uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. We won't spend as much time on this, but this is the second passage that the author quotes confirming that the Christ has inherited a greater name than the angels. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I won't read the whole passage, but you do need to be reminded of the context here because remember... The author has this whole context in mind. This is the point at which David has uh, peace and rest from all his enemies around about him. All of his surrounding kingdoms have been subdued. The entire nation is underneath his sovereignty, and he's resting in Jerusalem in his house. And David uh, is sitting there thinking, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. Seems like an appropriate thing to do. God has given me all of this rest. I'm going to build the Lord a house. Then the Lord comes to Nathan and uh, tells Nathan, go tell David this. And he says this, picking it up in verse 11. Uh, sorry, verse 10. The Lord tells David, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. The author of Hebrews quotes this. The rest of the passage speaks about if David's son commits iniquity, he will be chastised with the rod of men. But ultimately, God will not remove his mercies from David and his house like he removed it from Saul and his house. And there's a couple things to notice about this passage. First off, this is an example of typology. Typology in the Old Testament has to do with certain characters in the Old Testament are types. They are uh, representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. They picture for us in the narrative Christ and what he's going to do. In this context, the immediate application is Solomon, the son of David, who built the temple. He fulfills this almost exactly. Solomon is the one who was established in his throne after David died, and Solomon is the one who built a temple for the Lord. Solomon is also the one who was chastised for his sins. So the immediate application here is to Solomon. But it also applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that because the author of Hebrews 
quotes it as such. But we also know this because the way that types work in the scriptures is not often the way that we think. When we hear that there's a type, David is a type of Christ, Solomon is a type of Christ, Moses is a type of Christ, the Passover lamb was a type of Christ, we hear all these things are types of Christ, we want it to be neat and clean. We want it to be a one-to-one correspondence. But that's not often how it works in the scriptures. The way it works in the scriptures is that the type is like the Lord Jesus Christ in certain prominent features, but not in every detail. A type is like the Lord Jesus Christ in certain features, but not in every single detail. Now, we have to recognize it has to be this way. It has to be this way, because Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, is completely unique. There is nothing like him in all the earth. There never will be anything like him, and there never was anything like him. So if you're going to use an illustration, which is what types are, to depict the Lord Jesus Christ, it can only ever be partial. It can never be a full uh, 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 picture of the Lord Jesus. Only Christ is that. And so what we see in this passage are the prominent features where Solomon agrees with Christ. Number one, he's a son of David. He says in verse 12, I will set up your seed after you. Secondly, his kingdom will be established. We just read Psalm chapter 2, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And then finally, number three, he will build a house for my name. Solomon, the son of David, whose kingdom was established, builds the Lord's house. Now turn back to the book of Hebrews. Specifically, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Notice the author of Hebrews is going to take this idea from 2 Samuel 7, Later on in the letter, he's going to apply it to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the one who builds the house, just like Solomon did. And so Christ is the greater Solomon. Well, turning back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. And drawing out one simple application to take take away from this. The Lord Jesus Christ says in the Gospel of John, I do not receive honor from men. I receive no honor from men. It is only God the Father that can honor Christ rightly. We heard at the beginning of the sermon that that many of us, uh, all of us, live in the age of uh, Napoleon crowning himself. 
And this is how many of us approach the Lord Jesus. Many of us come to Jesus, we hear that he is a king, and we want to say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my king. Let me put my crown on your head. Let me tell you what kind of king I want you to be. Let me, uh, uh, can you be a, a, a king for me on Sunday mornings, but not the rest of the week? I, I want you to be a king who's like my boyfriend. I, I want you to be a king that meets my needs. And so we do what Napoleon did with the Lord Jesus. We attempt to crown Christ as king according to our own understanding and not according to the understanding of the Holy Spirit. You see, God the Father has already crowned His Son. God the Father has already exalted Him, and in the Scriptures He tells you everything you need to know about His kingdom. What then is our duty toward this King? Well, Psalm 2 gives it to us at the end of the psalm. Psalm 2, the author says, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. To kiss the Son is a sign of submission. It's a sign of bowing before Him and acknowledging His sovereignty. And then He finally says, Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Jesus is a King. And if you trust in Him, you will submit to His kingship. And in submitting to His kingship, you will be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus and we thank You for the mine of Scripture in which You have hidden deep and precious truths You have hidden the the raw material of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit in inspiring the New Testament and guiding us even now as we read your scriptures and seek to know your scriptures. You unearth all of those precious gems for us that we might recognize the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray you would help us to do so more and more and especially as we meditate and dig into your scriptures. And we pray all of this. For Jesus' sake, amen.